Well, good morning. It's good to be here and join you in worship today. I like that subtle little hint that she gave you that this is the service that's broadcast live. It's like code for, all right, everybody be cool, watch your language, that kind of thing. I know. That's it's like when my wife, uh, you know, you call and she's like, hey, you're on speakerphone. Uh, that's code for just watch what you're about to say. We don't want to educate the grandkids in the back seat. Uh, that's her, not me. Never mind. Um, my name is Rob Walker. I've met Many of you, I've been around for a while. Up until last December, I actually pastored at New Hope Baptist Church down in Cresswell, Oregon, just south of here. Um, last year, I stepped into a new role working with the uh, Northwest Baptist Convention. Now, you might not know this about uh, what it means to be Southern Baptist. Uh, Technically, every Southern Baptist church, by definition, is non-denominational. What that means is when I come into a church, I have no authority. I'm not the principal sitting in the back room taking notes or anything like that. My job is to come alongside and serve you because every church is independent and autonomous. You are responsible to Jesus Christ for engaging the community where he has placed you. And so my role from the convention is to help you and come alongside you as you do the work that God has set beside you. Uh, in front of you. And so every church we choose, that's why it's called the cooperative program. We cooperate voluntarily together to advance the kingdom. And, and one of the ways we do that, I know you've got Warren and Sarah Grace here, is that we work together uh, for, for collegiate ministries. We work together for church planting, all sorts of different things. That's where we know that we can do more united than we can on our own. And so even though we might be independent, at the same time we depend on one another to advance the kingdom. Um, and so so I'm working for the Northwest Baptist Convention. Now, it's actually a ridiculous job title. I am the, what am I? Okay. <laughs> I am the evangelism and church health catalyst, church planting strategist for region four of the Northwest Baptist Convention. Um, all that said, I joke, I said, really what that means is I'm head cheerleader for churches in Oregon. That's really what it comes down to. When I say churches in Oregon, I don't count Portland. I'm a little bitter towards them, but pretty much all the churches with the exception of Portland, um, are the ones that I work with, with the Northwest Baptist convention. Um, and so I, I do, we, I come alongside your pastor, Brian, Brian's a good friend. He's a fellow Oklahoman. We rejoice in the downfall of the evil regime at USC this weekend <laughs> that stole our coach, stole our football team. And then California had their hearts broken, just like Oklahoma would do to us every year, um, about this this time. And so, um, but yeah, we come alongside, you know, Brian and, and want to encourage him and, and minister to him. We understand that healthy churches have healthy pastors. And so we do a lot of work investing in pastors, um, and, and trying to develop them and encourage them. And so we do that with him. We come into churches that are struggling, um, and help them kind of re-engage their community, re-envision what it might be like, uh, to, to connect back into the mission that, that sometimes they have forgotten or they've just struggled, or let's just face it. In in Oregon, uh, a church might be doing just fine, but when the community you live in, four of the five lumber mills shut down, I mean, that's going to affect everything. And, you know, helping walk alongside churches and doing that. And then we also uh, do a lot of work in planting churches. Um, part of my conviction, even when I was pastoring at New Hope, was that our churches don't necessarily need to be bigger. We just need more of them. Um, especially up here in the Pacific Northwest. And so the Lord had given us a vision to be a church planting church down there and helping churches uh, get started. And, and we continue that vision. In fact, over here, I forget what you call it, but your propaganda center in the back corner over there. Um, 
I've got a little bit of information. It's, it's, a, it's midterm election year, so that's still fresh on my mind. Um, however you disperse information in that corner. I put a couple of these things over here I want to direct your attention to. There's a little QR code that you can scan. If you would like to know about the churches that we are currently planting in the Northwest, our current plants, this isn't just in Oregon, but also Washington and the Idaho Panhandle, you can scan this or take one of these, and this will take you to a catalog of the churches that we currently have going and how you might be able to adopt a planter. And we say adopt a planter, play for, pray for these guys, support these guys, reach out to these guys, call them, however you want to do that. But there's some information on how you can do that. And then I've got a smaller card that's got several QR codes on there. Again, one of them is for our church planting catalog, which is all of the churches that we're currently planting in the Northwest. But on the backside, there's a few others. If you have questions about maybe how you might be involved in church planting, or if the Lord's leading you into ministry and you want to explore that down the road, you can do that. But in this small corner right up here, there's one sign up for daily or weekly text uh, and prayer uh, request. Scan that and every Monday on your phone, you'll get a text that's going to have five church planters highlighted throughout the week and ways that you can specifically be praying for them. And that's a good way for you to be updated because you do support these. Through your giving to the cooperative program, you are helping plant these churches. You might as well know who these people are and how you can be praying for them. So I just want to direct your attention to that this morning. Um, today I'm going to be bringing the, the word to you this morning. And, and I'm, I'm going to be kind of sharing part of my story. I think some of y'all know this. Um, so to, to most of you, probably not. I'll share kind of my testimony, maybe the, the, the Walker family's adventure and joy over the last several years. And I'll be fairly transparent with you about maybe the, how the Lord has walked my family through this discovery of joy. Um, but as we get into that today, I really want to kind of take a step back and just, just a general reflection. I believe that we as a nation are in trouble. Um, I have yet to meet the person that looks around and says, you know what? We are not broken. Politics aside, the cause aside, whatever it might be, I think we can at least acknowledge that we are in trouble. And I think one of the main reasons that we as a country are in trouble is because a lot of the churches are in trouble. There, there is a major false teaching, a heresy that is swept through Western culture today. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And, and it, it's kind of that, it's this smooth sailing, fair weather agreement with God. And, it, and this is probably an oversimplification, but basically it goes like, all right, Lord, I'm going to be a good moral person. That's the moralistic part. I'll go to church. I'll be a nice person. I will do good things. And your job is to make sure that I'm happy. That's the therapeutic. God is my therapist. He makes me happy. And, and your job is to make sure life goes well, that life isn't too difficult for me. And as long as things are smooth sailing, I'm going to serve you. Now, we would never put it in those terms, but practically, that's what many of it, uh, for, for many people, it looks like. And what happens is when things don't go our way and when our faith is tested, we fall away. After all, we have this kind of American dream deal with Jesus, and if I'm not living the dream, it must be his fault. Like, I'm being the best person I could be, and I'm still not happy. Lord, clearly, you have somehow failed, because we have confused happiness with joy. And there is a difference between the two. We are not owed happiness. Yet we are promised joy. And what happens is, is we, we get mad at God. And you've seen this whole kind of deconstruction movement that's taking place in our country today is people, they, they pretty much walk away from the faith. Ultimately, moralistic therapeutic deism, they, they've created this God that exists to serve us. 
He's our genie in a lamp that's there to grant us our wishes. And I don't know how to reconcile that with scripture that tells us we should expect trials. We should expect difficulties. We're told difficulties are a certainty. And yet in the midst of those difficulties, we can have unspeakable joy. Now that's a strange concept when you think about it. Joy in the middle of hardship, joy in the middle of trials and difficulties, those concepts don't seem to go well together. And yet for the believer, they are a promise from Jesus himself. He's promised us hardship. And yet he's promised us a joy that the world can never take away. Now, before we get into the main text this morning, I really am. I want to kind of just back off and share part of my testimony with you and walk you through my adventure and joy over the last, really about the last three years. Uh, we, we, we had, let's say we, my family, we had our first hint of problems in October of 2018. Really, up until then, things are clipping along pretty good for the old Walker family. Church is going well. We're growing. I mean, everything, it's a good season in life. Our daughter was engaged to a guy that we desperately love, and we were so thrilled. Just a good, godly man. At the time, our son was a freshman in high school. We really were enjoying our time as a family. About that time, my wife, Kristen, she started getting these really bad migraines, just kind of out of the blue, random, to the point that her vision would get blurry. She would get really dizzy. I remember one time she called me. She's going up I-5 here at the Goshen exit. She had to pull off the side of the interstate because she was too dizzy to even drive. I had to come pick her up. For some strange reason, her her blood pressure starts getting really erratic. We don't know what's going on. About November of of that year, yeah, and and you don't even think anything of. I take her to the walk-in clinic in Cresswell, and I mean, everybody's been sick the last month. I mean, you know what it is. I mean, this is the season to go in and get, you know, whatever whatever bugs going around right now. So I take her into the clinic, not thinking much about it. We just think she's coming down with something. She checks in, and they take her blood pressure, and it's, it was like two twenty-seven over one eighty, which we didn't know at the time. We're like, what is that bad? And <laughs> I mean, we didn't have a clue. And they're literally like, we are legally not even allowed to see you beyond this. She's the, the, the lady at the clinic says, look, you've got two choices. We can call an ambulance and they can take her to the hospital or you can take her to the emergency room, but she's about to have a stroke. I mean, no, <laughs> yeah, that's not, all right. You have my attention, right? Cue the next six months. We're trying to figure out what in the world is going on with my wife. Her blood pressure consistently stayed in that 220 over 180 range. Medication had no effect on it whatsoever. At the same time, she starts having a lot of lower back pain. Ultimately, we're referred to, well, Dr. Veramonti, some of you might know him, a vascular surgeon here in the Eugene Springfield area. Uh, we're referred to him, and he discovers that her renal arteries, which are the arteries that supply the blood flow to your kidneys, were actually shutting off blood flow. In fact, the one on her right side had almost completely cut off, and Dr. V is like, yeah, your, your blood flow is restricted. Once we get this fixed, you'll probably have to have a transplant because this kidney is just too far damaged. But, you know, we think, okay, cool. At least we know what's wrong. You know, he's going to go in, he's going to put a stent in, then we'll get all this, and we just kind of get back to our well-ordered, happy, healthy life. In June of 2019, at this point, we go back in for some imaging on her renal arteries, and we think we're just going to schedule this surgery, get it done. Y'all, we were wrong. Dr. V comes out and he says, look, your arteries, they're not blocked. They're actually collapsing in on themselves. He said, I can't do the surgery. Your arteries are too brittle. They would, they would immediately break in surgery. You would bleed out. You will die. He, says, there's, he said, there's nothing I can actually do to help you. And he, he referred us to a rheumatologist at that point. 
In the meantime, you know, life goes on. We're a week away from our daughter's wedding, a week or so away from our daughter's wedding at this, this point. Friends, family, they're getting ready to, to start arriving from all over the world. The school year's coming to an end. You know, we think, all right, not the news we wanted. We're just going to kind of tuck this on the back burner. We're going to enjoy our daughter's wedding. Last day of school comes. Our son and his friends, they want to have this after-school party, kind of the home of one of the people in their friend group. You know, they've got a rock quarry, really good swimming hole. Gonna be a lot of kids there, a lot of a lot of those, you know, those helicopter moms. There's plenty of supervision. We just like, sure, you know, have fun, son. That afternoon I get a call from my wife saying, You need to get over there now. And one of our son's friends, he went under the water and never came back up. You know, their group, they'd all been swimming at the quarry. And, and out in the quarry, there's like this little floating island out in the middle. It wasn't even big. It was like not even as wide as this this room here and in the middle of it was there's this this island and my son and his friend they're on it and my son says hey let's let's swim over here there's a slide going in let's just swim over there it was only like 30 feet and, and let's go down the slide so they're swimming across or right right next to the shore my son hears the his friend say man i'm getting tired and as he turned to look he said all i saw was his hand go down and three bubbles that was it You know, just the day before this kid's in our home raiding our fridge, I'm complaining about the cost of groceries and what it costs to feed these guys. Now he's gone. I mean, we, we were absolutely crushed. That whole community. My son was devastated. He blamed himself for asking him to swim across. He blamed himself because he couldn't get to him fast enough when he went under. I mean, that, that grief. It was just so overwhelming. Turns out he had an asthma attack while swimming. They, they said it wouldn't have mattered. They didn't think if he was in the water or not. We, you don't know that. And we had a wedding in a week. I, I will say God and his care of us. It was a pleasant distraction having friends and family there at that time. If there was ever a time we needed that. That was it. So we were somewhat able to compartmentalize things. We did. We really enjoyed our daughter's wedding. It was a blessing, but it was strange. Such overwhelming grief and such joy at the same time. I officiated my daughter's wedding. A few days later, we officiated his memorial service. I mean, that, that whole school was numb. We were numb. Yet as a family, we're, we're moving forward. In the meantime, Kristen's health continued to decline. And we, we, I mean, we're almost a year and we still don't even have a diagnosis. We don't know what's wrong. And then in August of 2019, it's kind of late August of 2019, one night, and I, I, I still, I don't know how to wrap my, my mind around this, but Jesus appeared to me in a dream. Don't freak out. I'm still Baptist. I'm not some holy roller. It was just a dream. I do not equate this in any way with scripture or anything else. I'm not getting off Shamalama Ding Dong. This is just, um, it's just, it's a dream. But, but in this dream, Kristen and I were walking along and we're holding hands. And, and I, I can still see it and I don't know how to, like, I, in this dream, Jesus walks up to us. And I don't know how to explain it. Like, I couldn't see his face, but I knew it was him. And he says, Rob, you've been holding her hand for 27 years. You're going to have to let me hold her, her hand for a while. And in that moment, I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, 
of, there was no fear, there was no hesitation. Uh, of course, Jesus, I shouldn't have had it the last 27 years. You should have had it the whole time. Take it. And he takes my wife by the hand and they start to walk off. And I'm standing there by myself. And as they're walking away, I ask, am I ever going to get it back? I'm asking, is my wife going to die? And he paused. And I, it, it sounds weird. He turned to look at me. I couldn't see his face, but I, he just paused and he turned and he, he didn't say anything. He just paused and then they turned and they walked off. And I didn't need him to say anything because it didn't matter. I'm asking, Lord, is my wife going to die? And it didn't matter because whatever happened, he had her by the hand. Immediately I woke up and I experienced the most perfect peace I've ever experienced in my life. We talk about peace that passes all understanding, but until you walk through that, you just don't know. And I woke up that morning and, and the only way I can explain it, it was the complete and total absence of any anxiety. My wife was laying in bed next to me and I remember sitting up and I'm thinking, whatever is coming, it must be serious. But it's okay. Jesus has her by the hand. Two weeks later, the storm hit. She goes in for some imaging and they had to do an MRA on her, yeah, an MRA on her abdomen. Um, and during that scan, she started to have like really severe pain. I mean, really hurting badly. And, and you want to talk about God and his perfect timing. It took us over three months to get this scan approved because unless there is a magical code for insurance, then it just can't possibly be a medical issue. And so it took forever to get this approved. We finally get in there. And even though it took us three months to get this scan approved, at the exact moment she was having it done, the mesenteric artery, which is the artery that supplies all the major blood flow to your central organs, collapsed. And they caught it. Like immediately they caught that. By the next morning, she's in the hospital. We were told. The longest night of my life is laying in bed, wondering if my wife is ever going to be there next to me again. We're not expecting her to make it out. We finally had a diagnosis, though, and it's an autoimmune disease, polyarteritis nodosa with necrotizing vasculitis. You don't want that. It was extremely rare, and the prospects of survival depended on how quickly they were able to get blood flow going back to your organs again. Because once organs are damaged, it's not like they're undamaged. Um, the next four months, she, she survived in the hospital that week. The next four months, though, were rough. In, in order to suppress her immune system, she had to, she had to kind of let her arteries catch up and heal. And so she had to take these really strong doses of chemo. Because what happens is her immune system attacked her blood vessels. Now, your blood vessels, I didn't know this. I thought they were just kind of like a straw or a hose, blood flows through, problem solved. But they're actually more like an onion. And your blood vessels have all these layers. And her immune system would attack those layers in her blood vessels. And they were collapsing on themselves. And so she had to take like this really strong chemo treatment for like, several months to, to knock her immune system down so her blood vessels could heal. Y'all, those were dark days. There were moments when my wife was so sick, she couldn't even walk from the bedroom to the living room. Times I would have to pick her up off the floor because she just, she couldn't. I know some of you have experienced this. I know some of you have been through this or you've watched a loved one go through it. It's difficult. 
And yet through all of it, we, we had joy. We knew that Jesus was holding her hand. Now, I, I'll tell you this. Come January 2020, one day she, she woke up, she felt better. Blood pressure normal, kidney stopped hurting just fine. In fact, we go to the rheumatologist and we think something's going on. He looks at her image and he says, well, you, you don't seem to have this damage to your arteries anymore. And, but, but he's very cautious. And he says, that's good news, but we're not going to use the word remission until you've been symptom free for a minimum of five years. Because you just don't, that's not a thing that actually happens. Two months later, he comes in. He says, you're in remission. He, he says, there's literally nothing for me to treat. He says, there's no medical explanation. He used the term miracle. In fact, Dr. V, he assumed Kristen had died. When she followed up with him, he was like surprised to find her. He said miracle. There's, there was no explanation. It would seem, now I'll tell you, she's still not back to full speed because, you know, what the disease doesn't get, chemo will do. I mean, chemo's rough. And, and she's still, she's got a lot of issues from side effects from all that. But it would seem, at least for the time, I got my wife's hand back. I'm thankful for that. You know, Kristen and I, we look back at this now and we laugh, but I still remember New Year's Eve of 2019. We're not the type like, hey, let's wait up till midnight and see the New Year's end. But like 830, we good, let's call it a night. And I remember as we're getting ready for bed, we kind of look at each other and we literally go, I am so glad this year is over. Bring on 2020. It's going to be better. And we rolled right into COVID. And you all know what that was like. Pastoring a congregation, shepherding a flock that's been scattered. That was one of the most difficult things just ministry-wise I've ever dealt with. I share this story with you because I want you to know there is a tension between grief and joy that is something only followers of Jesus can understand. Those were very dark very trying days for my family. And yet at no time did the Lord take away our joy and our delight in him. It was so strange to be completely devastatingly broken and at the same time, never more whole. He strengthened our confidence in his sovereign authority. We knew that Jesus kept watch over us during that storm. We knew that in the trial, the Lord sustained us and taught us more about serving him and loving him. And even when it was hard, we knew Jesus had us by the hand and that live or die, it's okay. Because God is good, God is wise, and he can be trusted. I want to share with you one of my Facebook posts. You know, your memories, they pop up. And it's about this time three years ago. This, my memory popped up last week on this. And I thought it just fit well with where we're going this morning. But I'm writing here in this. And it's kind of, we just told people about what was going on with my wife. And I wrote, obedience, imperfect obedience at that does not obligate God to our desires. Followers of Jesus are not exempt from difficulties. In fact, we are promised that hard times will come. As Christian has faced declining health in the last few months, we have discovered a new depth to the grace and beauty of the gospel. Jesus is enough. We've already been given every spiritual blessing in Jesus. We lack nothing in him. Trials and difficulties in this world are but a momentary blip in view of eternity. A few weeks ago, the Lord showed me a verse in scripture that I had never caught before. I think he was preparing me for things to come. It's John 16, 22. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Even for the disciple, there's an appointed time of grief, but it would not have the final word. In the end, we have the promise of Jesus. 
Right now we grieve the loss of Christian's health. In all honesty, I have loved the stage of life that we've been in and I grieve losing what we've had. I grieve losing the false sense of security that we think we can control anything. I grieve the trial that my kids are having to walk through. But it seems that now is our time and that's okay. Is God less good because we have this temporary trial? Of course not. I'm reminded of Jesus' words as he ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. This means that even our trials fall under the authority of Jesus and he is good and we will see him again and we will rejoice and no one will take away our joy. What, what strange companions, grief and joy Trials and hardships coupled with the intrinsic confidence that God is good? In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that Jesus himself experienced the same thing firsthand. Hebrews 12 2, fixing our eyes in Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning in shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him? What was the joy set before Jesus? Crucifixion was one of the most terrible ways of execution to die in the ancient world. The word, the word, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. That's where we get it. Jesus knew the excruciating pain and suffering that he would have to endure, yet he knew it would only be for a limited time. He knew a time was coming when he would rise from the dead after three days, and then in the days ahead, he would be ascending back into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. There was a deep and abiding sense of happiness that filled the heart of Jesus that could not be taken away from him by his circumstances. Now, I'll stop and just recognize at this point in the sermon, you're probably starting to think, dang, Rob, this is taking a dark turn right? Sickness, death, chemo. Now you've got humiliation, suffering, crucifixion, like worst Christmas sermon ever. <laughs> but I want you to stick with me. I'm very well aware that for everyone, the last few years have been very difficult and trying times. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. And as believers, how are we supposed to have joy in such times? But then I come to our passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 2, and I'm reminded that there were, in fact, uh, other times when the world was much more bleak, lacking all hope, lacking joy. Actually, before Luke chapter 2, it goes all the way back to Genesis in the garden, right? All of this brokenness that we live in, the darkness that we see, it all started with the question, did God really say and so began the work of Adam and Eve in their rebellion against God and their sin, bringing mankind into this struggle against death in the world today. From that moment on with Adam and Eve in the garden, the world begins to rebel and spirals out of control. God eventually says, I've got to start over, and he saves Noah and his family. Later, we see he raises up a man named Abraham, and God makes Abraham a promise. You will be my special people. I will make you a great nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed because of you. Later we read of Joseph who saves his family and they will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Then for 400 years, God's special people are slaves in Egypt. 
And then you see Moses, and God affirms that promise once again, I will be your God, you will be my people. You see deliverance, the Ten Commandments, then comes Joshua, the promised land, judges, a time where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We can imagine if we think real hard what that might look like, right? Then we see Samuel, the last judge. And then Israel, ultimately, they reject God and his leadership. And they say, we want a king like all the other nations. And so there's Saul, and then there's David, and then King Solomon. And then comes turmoil, civil war, total defeat, conquest. There's the exile, the return, the struggle, the rebellion. And finally, God gives a message to the prophet Malachi. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and deadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers and then silence. For 400 years, God does not speak on this world. 400 years of silence. Israel groans under the crushing oppression of war and famine, defeat, wickedness, idolatry. They're occupied by Rome. All the while, God has been distant and silent. Grumblings among the people that God has forgotten them. Doubts that God is even real. Anger that God has somehow abandoned them. And the whole world waits for redemption. And for 400 years, nothing. And then in Luke chapter 2, in the darkness... And in the silence, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. When it comes to the Christmas story, most of it's found right here in Luke's account. The angels singing, the shepherds coming to see the baby, the manger scene, no room at the inn. You know, why, why they had to make the trip to Bethlehem in the first place. We read that earlier in, in, in Luke. Now, the Gospel of Matthew gives us the story of the star, the wise men, why they had to go to Egypt. Mark and John bypassed the birth of Christ entirely. But Luke, he starts his story with the shepherds. Shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. You know, it's interesting to me that the first ones to hear the good news were shepherds. These were the fringes of society. They had, sure, they had a reputation for bravery, right? I mean, their job is literally to fight wolves and lions and even thieves that might come and attack the flock. 
But they also had a reputation that they themselves were a little bit suspect. They were people of questionable character, so much so that in that day, they were shepherds were not allowed to testify in legal proceedings because it was assumed that they were unreliable witnesses. And yet, it's to these trolls, varmints, and rejects that angels bring the first news from God in over 400 years. Kind of funny how the Lord does that, isn't it? 400 years of silence, and then he brings the greatest news the world has ever heard to a group of people that ain't nobody going to believe them anyway. He uses the unlikely. I think it's also interesting and worth noting, and, and again, this is pure speculation here. We have no way of knowing with certainty that it's true of these particular shepherds, but the shepherds in Bethlehem were the ones that had been given the task of caring for the sheep that would be used in the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. Bethlehem was just a little backwater town just outside of Jerusalem. Again, we can't know that's for certain, but to me, the, that's a different sermon entirely, but man, that symbolism is remarkable. And so, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I wonder what it had to be like for the angels. We, we know in Romans chapter 8, we're told that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. The angels were created beings. They had been waiting for something to be made right. They knew that something was wrong. All along, these angels have known the glory of God. They've been in the presence of the Son in the throne room of heaven. They have witnessed the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They've seen the wickedness uh, of the created flaunting his hatred of the Creator. They know how undeserving and how unworthy man mankind really is. They've seen God remain silent for 400 years. And then finally, they get the command, go and tell. What an adventure that must have been for them, right? They're finally sent to speak for God after 400 years. What a great joy that must be, right? And then they get there and their message isn't to kings. It isn't to rulers. It's just a bunch of shepherds. And the message the message isn't, hey, y'all, the preexistent king of glory has arrived in Jerusalem to establish his eternal kingdom. It's instead the king of kings and lord of lords is born in poverty and laying in a manger. They had to marvel at how much God must love his creation that their king would endure such humility. And that this indignity would be called good news of great joy. And yet that's exactly what happened. Don't be afraid. We bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now the term good news, that's literally where we get the word gospel. Gospel literally means good news. In the brokenness of this bleak and difficult world, the glory of God interrupts it with good news. Great news. News that brings joy in the midst of hardship. And the news today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Today, the angel says, hope has come. Today, in the darkness, we find light. Not just after 400 years of silence. Remember, from the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, all of creation has waited for today, this moment. Good news, the angel says, great joy is in, in your time of great need. A Savior has been born. Now think about that. 
The angels don't bring a message to the shepherd saying, you know what? There's this really wise teacher that's just shown up. He's not just a good man. They don't say there's the greatest rabbi Israel has ever seen or the most powerful ruler that Israel has ever seen. That's not what was needed. What they needed was the Savior. Now is a time of great joy because your greatest need in the darkest of night has arrived. A Savior has been born to you. Rejoice, O shepherd. Rejoice, you that are outcast and on the fringes. Rejoice, you who know what it is to be on the outside looking in. Because this day a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Oh, you want to talk about an adventure and joy. In just a moment, these shepherds have gone from a dark and lonely hillside and been plunged into the glory of God himself in order to receive a message that the promised hope of the world has been born for them. I'd say, yes, indeed, that's good news. The news that you are not alone, your Savior has arrived. And then this question, the angels, it's almost like he knows what they're thinking. How can you know for sure that this is true? And they invite him, go, see for yourselves. With the announcement of the good news comes this invitation. Go check it out. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. And then suddenly, as if that wasn't enough, the great host of heaven, right? The heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I want you to consider just what has happened in this moment. The shepherds are the first people on the planet to hear the good news, the gospel, that a savior has been born for them. Now, what's the gospel? Let's look at that real quick. The gospel is the good news according to scripture about Christ and the way of salvation. Ultimately, Paul's going to sum up the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I pass on as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters uh, at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's what Paul says the gospel is, the good news is. When, when the writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before Christ, he endured these things, let's be clear. His joy was to suffer those things. His joy was to suffer in order to glorify the Father and bring us peace with God. And that is the song of the angelic choir. Glory to God in the highest and peace on those to those on whom his favor rests. Your Savior brings you peace. The gospel is the good news that God loves the world enough to give his son to die for our sins. The gospel is good news because our salvation and eternal life and our home in heaven are guaranteed through this Savior that the angels have just announced. We can rejoice because the angels appear with the message that in a broken and a doomed world there is good news. But it wasn't simply enough for the shepherds to hear the good news. Ultimately, they had to go and experience it for themselves. So they hear the message. And then when the angels left and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurry off and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. For the shepherds, their adventure and joy was just the beginning. They had heard the message, but the testimony of the angels was not enough. 
They had to go and experience Jesus for themselves. And so they go. They investigate the claims for themselves. And what happened when they go looking for a Savior? They find him. And so will you. I know that at times the world seems bleak. We have witnessed unspeakable heartache, tragedy. We have all had to endure various trials, various hardships. None of us are spared difficulties. Jesus has promised us that we will feel the weight of sin in this world. We will all endure grief for a time. But we also have the promise. When we go and see Jesus for ourselves, that this Savior, the one that's born in a manger, if you go and look for him, you will find him and rejoice. And no one can take away our joy. My, my family has experienced this firsthand. I'm sure many of you have walked through something similar. And yet this Advent season, out on the fringes of the darkness of the world that we live in today, we hear the same message. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. We believers have joy because to us, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Lord. Do you know him? Have you encountered Christ for yourself? Have you, like those shepherds, gone out and seen firsthand the hope that you've heard about it's not enough to simply hear the good news. You have to go and experience Jesus firsthand. Have you done that? As we prepare to close this morning, if you have not yet experienced Christ firsthand, I want to invite you, like the angels did to those shepherds, to go and see for yourself just who the Savior is. When the service is over, if you want to know how you can step out of darkness into the great joy of knowing Christ, I would love to have that conversation with you. I'll be hanging out here. Come and talk to me and let's talk about how you can discover true and lasting joy regardless of the circumstances in your life. Maybe you're not comfortable talking to me. You don't know me. I'm a stranger to you. Turn to any believer in here and ask them how they, you can have the joy they've discovered. Because there's another lesson in here for the believer. For those of you today that have already experienced the Savior firsthand, there's another lesson from the shepherds. Verse 17, when they had seen them, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Once the shepherds discovered for themselves the joy of knowing Jesus, they didn't keep that bit of news to themselves, did they? It would have been absurd to discover good news that would bring great joy to all the people and then for them to keep it quiet. No! Once they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them, and so should we. Our job in the darkness, in the trials, in the difficulties, is being, to be bearers of good news. The joy of the shepherds was not simply in hearing the good news, and really, ultimately, the joy in the shepherds wasn't even in discovering Jesus for themselves. The joy in the shepherds was made complete when they had heard and then experienced and then shared that good news with others. Is that not the progression of faith for every single one of us? Is that not how we experience joy 
in this good news of Jesus Christ. This Advent season, I pray that you find joy in sharing what you have heard and witnessed in your own life. The angels, they might have been the first ones to have the joy of sharing the good news, but now God has blessed you and me with this sacred honor. We get to join the angelic host glorifying and praising God and going into a dark world and saying, our Savior has come. Good news. There's one last thing I want to point out. Verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. One last thing I want you to see. The shepherds didn't stay in the presence of the angels. The shepherds didn't even stay at the manger that long. Having discovered the good news, what did they do? They went right back into those dark fields. They went right back into the world that they had just left back to the flocks, back to the same troubles that they had been dealing with beforehand, only this time in the darkness they had joy. God doesn't call us to salvation to discover the Savior, to remove us from the problems of this world. He sends every one of us back into it. Now we get to be the voice that says, great news, a Savior has been born to you. The world is still broken. The world is still gloomy. God doesn't save us to take us away from the trial and hardship. He sends us back into it with good news for others. That's what we're called to do. You hear that? <laughs> that's my cue to stop. <laughs> like, that's subtle. Okay. Let me close this in prayer. I would just encourage you. If you don't yet know Christ, let me talk to you about how you might discover the joy of the Savior yourself. If you do know Christ, get back into the world <laughs> and tell others about this great joy we have in him. Father, we thank you for the promises of Christ. We thank you that for those that are in Jesus, we can have joy even in heartbreak, in difficult times and circumstances. And Father, I pray that we will proclaim that hope, that joy to all who hear it. Let us proclaim this Savior that was born in a manger, that we might all find peace once again with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.